have your Bibles, turn with me to the New Testament to uh, a book called Titus. Titus. Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. Actually, just start in the first chapter, and we may walk through this book a little bit together. Uh, But uh, I want to share with you some things that God has really laid upon my heart. And um, we start a new series next week, a church-wide series, and it's been on the calendar for a while. And so I'm not good at one-time messages. That's just not me. I'm a series kind of guy, and I like to preach through series and books and and those things. And so um, I'm going to come back and uh, touch on the rest of this this passage. But I I want to talk this morning to men. Um, As someone who is has a calling deeply placed upon their life. It is the man's role, the man's responsibility, the father's responsibility, and the husband's responsibility to be a good spiritual head, to be a good spiritual leader, and to understand what it means to lead his family. And I want to talk to you this morning, especially whether you're over 50 or whether you're under 50, is simply this. The title of this message this morning is An Older Man Worth Following and becoming. I want to talk to older men this, uh, this morning, but also if you're here and you're younger, and you're a younger man, it's, it's worth following someone. And finding these men that you can follow who are older, who have lived their life throughout in the faith. And uh, the, the idea here that I want to just simply talk with you about this morning is discipleship. See, we, we don't talk about the importance of discipling enough. Some people think discipleship is, is something that is so hard to do and I could never do this and I could, I could never be a discipler. And the truth is, is that you are discipling someone. I just hope you're discipling them in Christ, man. I hope you're pouring into them the things of Jesus and not just pouring into them the things of the world. See, the truth is, is that we are all need to be in two stages of our life. We all need to be discipling someone because the Word of God tells us in the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Now think about this for just a moment. The Great Commission says to make disciples. It doesn't say to find, to find disciples. It doesn't say to go look for disciples. It says to make disciples. That means there's going to be some some baggage and some mess that you and I, as, as children of God, are going to have to walk with other believers, other brothers in Christ as men, and, and to sit with them and to talk with them and to disciple them and to be okay with that. Because making disciples is a messy job. It's not something that we're going to do unintentionally either. It's not something that we're just going to do and we're going to get up and go, you know what, I'm just going to live my life any way I want to and hopefully I'll make a disciple along the way. That's not how it works. See, a disciple is someone who looks at at their teacher or looks at the one who is discipling them and says, whatever you say, yes, I'm going to do that. They called them followers in Jesus' day when they said, we're his disciple, we're his followers. In other words, yes, Jesus, we'll follow you, whatever you say, whatever you want, and then we'll ask questions later. See, every one of us needs to be discipling someone, but also every one of us needs to be discipled. And here's my secret, and I've just let me just share this with all the men in the room. And ladies, please don't check out on me because you say, well, what does this have to do with me this morning? If you're a wife, you're to lead your husband toward godliness. You're to encourage him toward godliness. So when we talk about these things, 
that we are going to look at with, with, with the men in this room, I want you to jot these things down too because you can encourage men around you toward these things in godliness. If you're, if you're not a wife and you're a younger woman in the room, listen, you can begin to jot these things down too because you can begin to store these things up to help your brothers, to help other people who are around you and encourage them toward godliness. Here's my secret for, for men, and I just, I just, I've found this out in my life, and people don't realize this, but this has been a great value for me. I find someone who's over 50 to do life with, because here's what I've learned about men who are over 50. They don't care about impressing anyone, especially in the ministry. I like to find pastors who are over 50 because they could care less who they impress. They could care less about what you think of their numbers, what you think about their programs, what you think. The men over 50 could care less what you think about them when it comes to for you to be impressed by them. All they are worried about is finishing well. And if I can learn to finish well in my 30s now, then it won't take me to when I get to 50 and go, you know what, now I need to focus on finishing well. So if you're a younger man in this room and you're younger than 50, I want you to understand we're going to look for these men in, in, this, in this description that Paul is going to give Titus. And if you're 50 or older, you're going to become these men. That's what we're striving to do in our life if we're not there. But every single one of us in this room, we can strive to emulate these examples that Paul is going to give us. Now, Ask any man, ask any um, minister or great man of God why their ministry has been successful and they will attribute it not just to themselves but the men who helped bring them along as they were younger. The men who fathered them in ministry. The men who paved the way. And many of you in this room, you may not be in ministry, so to speak, as far as on the platform or be called into to professional ministry, but you are a minister. And there are men all along the way who have prepared and paved things for your life to show you things so that you could share with the next generation. And so many of us, we just simply sit back and we don't disciple the next generation. We keep all of that in ourselves and we may uh, be being discipled, but we're not discipling others. And so uh, we're going to look at this. Paul wasn't exempt from this. Do you realize this? When Paul came back to Jerusalem after he was converted, there was one man that stood and encouraged him, and one man that stood for him. His name was Barnabas. Barnabas was really Paul's discipler. He, he might not have had all the knowledge Paul had. Paul went through, uh, had the knowledge when he, when he was a Pharisee and sat under Gamaliel and all of these things. But Barnabas was the discipler that said, Paul, you can do it. You can minister. You, there is a plan for you. There is something for you. But Paul also had guys who he discipled along the way. And Titus is one of those guys. Now, not a lot of people preach on Titus or talk about Titus. And so who is Titus? Well, in Galatians 2, it tells us that Titus was converted on Paul's first missionary journey. And when Paul came back and he stood before the Jerusalem council, he brought Titus with him as evidence that the gospel had come to the Gentiles, the gospel had come to a Greek man who Titus was, and his life had been radically changed. 
When we look in uh, 2 Corinthians also, Titus was sent by Paul to the church at Corinth, not only to deliver this fourth letter that Paul would, uh, would write to them, but also he was such a man of integrity that Paul trusted him to take up the offering that, that they were taking up around the churches in the area in order to take it back to Jerusalem. Paul trusted him so much. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8.23 about Titus. As for Titus, he is my partner and my true companion serving you. Now, go with me to Titus chapter 1, and I want you to see how the language changes when Paul writes Titus. Paul's writing a church and saying, he is my true partner And my true companion serving you. In other words, he's legit. You could just say that. I mean, that's a a good way to say it. He's the real deal. I don't know any other way to say that. But in in Titus chapter 1 and in verse 4, listen to how Paul addresses Titus. To Titus, my true child in our common faith. The only other person that Paul addresses as his true child is also Timothy. See, there's a reason that we have what's called the pastoral epistles in the New Testament where Paul writes all of his letters to the churches, but then he comes to the end, toward the end of his life, and he writes to Timothy and Titus to let them know how to carry out the ministry because he realizes he's not going to be around much longer. And these are his disciples These are the guys that walked with him, that did life with him. This is why small groups are so important. This is why discipleship classes are so important. Because you find someone and you do life with them. And you text them throughout the week and say, man, pray for me in this. Or man, this is what I'm going through. Or hey, I don't know what to think about this passage. I read that this morning. What does it mean? That is why it's so important to have discipleship. And so many of you, and I'm not scolding you. I'm not being angry with you. But listen, listen to the passion of my voice. You come to church Sunday morning only, and you have no one to disciple you throughout the week. You have to have a discipleship with someone. That's why small groups are so important, and that's why discipleship classes are so important. Think about everything that you learn. Now, look at verse 5, Titus chapter 1. And then we're going to walk through this text together. But I just want to set this up to help you understand where we're at. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to point elders in every town. So Titus is in Crete ministering. And Paul said, the reason I left you there to carry out this good work is because there was some unfinished business. And you needed to, put, you needed to appoint a pastor in every single town over every church. An overseer that that can do these things. And he gives the qualifications. But then look at verse 10. Go with me to verse 10. For there are also many rebellious people, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them or rebuke them, whatever your text says. They overthrow whole households by teaching for dishonest gain what they should not. One of their very own prophets said this. Now think about this. This is where Titus is. And Paul is saying one of their very own prophets, one of their very own uh, philosophy guys said this about his town. That the Cretans are always liars. How would you like to live in that town? Sound like America? Evil beasts. Lazy gluttons. 
And listen to what Paul says. This testimony is true. So rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who reject the truth. Now, the idea here is that there are false teachers that have crept into the church that says, yes, you can be a Christian, but you also need to take on the customs and and the traditions and, and all of these rituals and go through all of these ceremonial cleansings and all of these things. In order to be a Christian, you must take up what the Jewish people have always been doing. And Paul is like, rebuke them. That, that is not true. And he says this, the end of verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. So you see where we are in the text. Paul is writing to his son, Titus, saying, this is what's going on, Titus. Now, here's what I want you to do about it. So here's where we get to. And if you've got something to write with, I want you to write these down. Because Paul is getting ready to show Titus how the gospel, listen to me, how the gospel works itself into every single aspect of our life. Paul is going to address older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. That pretty much covers it all, don't it? And he even addresses slaves at the end of this chapter. But he is going to radically tell them how the gospel is supposed to transform every single area of our life. And so if you're a younger man, when we look at this list, you're like, well, that's not me. This is who we are to become and and to try to follow And if you're an older man and you're like, well, that's not me much of the time. That's who you are to become uh, in your life. Paul is going to give us eight essential characteristics for godly men to live out daily. Are you listening? Eight. I'm going to preach through these quickly. You're like, that's what they all say. Here we go. Write these down. Look what he first says. But you must speak what is consistent with sound teaching. The first thing that Paul gives us, the first characteristics, is that they're to be a teacher. They're a teacher. Because look at the verse before. Look what he said. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. And then there's an emphatic statement in the present where he says, But you. In other words, this is what they're doing, but you must speak what is consistent with sound teaching. It is a a contrast between these teachers who are false teachers and what Paul is urging Titus to do. This idea of speaking, because why? Why must we speak the word of God? Why must we speak things to this next generation? Why must we speak in order to disciple this next generation? Because the Bible says faith comes from hearing. See, we, we just think that somehow if I just model this, it'll work. But listen, I, I heard this the other day, and it was, I don't remember who said it, but it was so profound. They said this, trying to convey the gospel without words is trying to convey the nightly news without words. Now you think about that. If you don't use words, and you don't speak the gospel, and you don't speak the truth of God's word, then how can anyone come to understand it? Faith comes from hearing. So he says, but you speak what is consistent with sound teaching. Now that word sound, you see that? I want you to circle that and I want you to write out healthy. 
Because there's a better word in the Greek for that. It's, it literally means healthy. It's without any type of uh, infirmity. It's without any type of disease or anything. It's this idea of a healthy teaching is a sound doctrine. In other words, there's nothing that we take when we teach the Word of God that manipulates the Word of God, that tries to force something upon the Word of God, that isn't consistent with the Word of God, but that it is sound doctrine. It is healthy teaching. Now, many men across this country who stand in pulpits don't even take this into the pulpit with them. And they'll talk about stories and they'll talk about illustrations. And then at the end, they'll tack on a verse in order to try to make it Christian. Listen, I want you to understand, and I've said this ever since I've had the privilege to be your pastor here in this service, is that all Scripture is profitable. We need to teach it. And one of the bases for why Scripture is true and why I believe it from cover to cover is the internal consistency found within it. Because every author, 40 authors, over three different continents, over 1,500 years, over miles separated by geography, all speak the same thing. And its internal consistency tells Tells us that it is true. It's divinely inspired. So when he says, speak this sound doctrine, this healthy teaching, it's this idea that simply that it is how you speak it. It's not just your words, but it's also your actions. Look at what he says in verse 16. Back up with me. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. This idea points back in the text to this, is that Paul is drawing this comparison, is that if we are going to be teachers of healthy teaching or healthy doctrine, is that it has got to be true, not only in how we speak it, but how we live it. And I'm amazed daily at people who call themselves knowledgeable about the Word of God, and that they will say something with their mouth, and it will be consistent with what the Word of God teaches, and their life they will do something else. Listen, guys, what you say, listen to me, men, what you say is what you know, what you do is who you actually are. You realize that? You can tell your wife all day long that you love her, but if you never lovingly serve her, if you never attend to her needs, if you never put her before yourself, those words are hollow. You can say all you want, and that's this idea of a healthy teaching. So if you're a young man in here, here's what I want you to understand about this idea. Look for another man over 50 who has a healthy walk with the Lord. Their life you see it in them. They have a healthy walk with the Lord. They talk about Jesus. They model it. Their family models it. Look for that. The second characteristic is that they're level-headed. Look at what he says. Older men are to be, this is what my text says, self-controlled, but there's a better word for that. It simply means level-headed. In other words, listen, and I think the older you get, the, the, maybe the easier this becomes because I've seen it modeled for me. But I have a hard time sometimes being level-headed as a man. My highs can be very high and my lows can be very low. Level-headed doesn't mean that, that we just were quick to pass judgment and sentence. Level-headed means that we, we, we take caution. We use discernment. We choose our words carefully. We don't just fly off the handle at a moment. 
And I can tell you, I, I can be the world's worst at this. But we take discernment. We're clear on what truly matters. I mean, here's the, the idea is that we think somehow that wisdom comes from age. Wisdom doesn't come from age. Wisdom doesn't come from education. Why? David said it in Psalms 100. I had more wisdom than the elders. I had more wisdom than the teachers because of your word, O Lord. Wisdom comes from the word. But see, if you take some man who's over 50, who's lived out the word consistently in his life, you have an extremely wise man that can give us a different perspective in our 30s, in our 40s. Because they say, yeah, 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 you're focused on this, but I want you to understand, here's how you finish well. They're level-headed. Anybody have a hard time choosing their words correctly? <laughs> yeah, a level-headed person chooses their words wisely, correctly. They don't just fly off the handle. They're level-headed. And here's something that you can think about. When you're looking for these men who you want to follow or who you want to become like this that Paul is talking about, is that their priority is one thing and one thing only, and it's to honor and please God. So when you look for those men, look for someone whose priorities is just to honor God. It doesn't mean they don't have activities. It doesn't mean they're not busy. It doesn't mean they don't have family duties. It means that in everything you see that their only priority in life is to honor and please God. The third thing is he says, worthy of respect. And I just wrote this down. He's reverent. We've lost this in a new culture of Christians. We've lost this because the older generation understands reverence. And they, might have, they actually might even understand it in a little bit of a legalistic term. Don't run in church. Dress your very best. You be reverent. You don't talk. You don't clap. You don't do anything, right? And it can become a legalism thing. But reverent really means is that this man only strives for what is morally valuable and worthy. He, he wants the very best. His integrity so attracts younger men that they want to, to model his life. I have several men in my life right now who are over 50 that I just do life with. I get to talk with. I get to be a part of their life. They get to be a part of mine. And they even come to me for advice at times. But I look at their life and they are men of integrity. And I'm like, that's what I want. More of that. More of that. More level-headedness. More reverence. More integrity at times. These are the same character traits that God expects of deacons and their wives as well. This, this description is used in 1 Timothy to be worthy of respect. So if you have a position of leadership in the church, reverence is not a, well, maybe we will be. Reverence is also a quality of an overseer. It's a have to. Listen to what Dr. Danny Aiken said about this. And here's, this was the best way that I knew how to share this with you. This is the man who, while not being a prude or a Pharisee, takes no delight in inappropriate, 
off-color humor, vulgarity, or anything else that is suspect, questionable, or out of bounds. This is the man that you go to work with and you see him and, and somebody says uh, a joke or something that says something that, that's a little off color, a little off humor, and people start laughing and he finds it not funny whatsoever because he's a man of integrity. He's reverent. Fourth characteristic, I'm moving fast. We're halfway through almost. It says he's sensible. A better way to look at that is that he's self-controlled. He's self-controlled. Now, from what I see in the text, and I'm not the greatest biblical theologian here, but what I see in this text is that self-control appears in the older men, the younger men, the older women, and the younger women. See, there's something about being self-controlled. There's something about the fact that this is a major key to living a holy life, is understanding and practicing self-control. We tend to think that somehow this comes from just, you know, uh, a life that just learns to not do certain things, but it comes with falling more in love with Jesus over and over and over, being constantly washed by the renewing and the cleansing of his word. And our mind is continually being transformed. I shared with you several weeks ago about an illustration, I'll just say it again, is that a ship captain that was driving into a harbor, there was a sea goddess that would always cry out from the depths of the ocean floor. And as these ship captains would come in, these men would jump off the ship and dive to the depths and just swim and swim because this, this, this sound that was coming from the ocean was so beautiful, so majestic, so wonderful that they just had to get to it. And so they just jumped and they, they, they swam and they swam and they swam until they eventually drowned. And these sea captains were like, what are we going to do? And one sea captain said, I know what I'm going to do. Next time we come into port, I'm going to strap every man that I have. I'm going to tie them to the mast with a rope. And he did that. And so they wanted to jump and they wanted to jump and they wanted to jump, but they couldn't. That's legalism. But another captain is he found someone else who played a more beautiful sound and he put them right in the center of the boat. And when they came into harbor, they didn't even notice the depths, what was crying out from the depths. They listened to the more beautiful sound and that is exactly the idea of being self-controlled. It's not just saying, well, I'm not doing that anymore. It's that we fall madly in love with Jesus and he has the most beautiful sound. And we understand how to control our passions and our desires and our flesh because we're falling more in love with Jesus. I'll never forget this quote. I was sitting in his office and I was preparing a series and I was just running things by him and, and just to make sure that he was okay with what I was going to preach. And it's very early on in this service. And my series was called Appetite. And I was talking about how we have unhealthy appetites and different things. And it was spiritually speaking, but i never forget our lead pastor. He looked at me and he said this. I wrote this down this morning. Show me a man who is not self-controlled in his physical appetite and I'll show you a man who is unbalanced in other places in his life. See, if we can control our intake in our life, we can control our actions and what comes out of it. But when we can't control what, what we take in, 
If we tend to not control the media that we consume, if we tend to not control uh, uh, the things we look at, the things that we hear, it spills over into every member of our body. It's a self-control. <laughs> Here's a good thing to write down, fathers. You can use this because I was 22 years old. We're walking through a mall, me and my daddy, and a good-looking woman walks across. And I'm 22. I'm not married. I just go, hmm. And my daddy nudges me. We're going this way. She's going that way. Nudges me, and he says, keep your eyes on Jesus. I thought it was funny at the time, but you know what? Throughout my life, if those situations happen again, the voice of my father comes into my head and says, keep your eyes on Jesus. See, that's self-control. And if we can begin to understand through the Holy Spirit's power of how to live this out, it's a key to living a holy life. Here's the, the fifth thing, is faith. Look at what he says. Sound in faith. Again, that word sound is healthy. A healthy faith. He's a man of faith. A man of great faith. His faith is, is a healthy faith. He's not telling people to believe in something because, listen, I say this to the students all the time, but your faith is only as strong as the object you place it in. You can have faith in a bungee that it's going to hold you from the top of a bridge, but if you let me set it up, I wouldn't jump. Because your faith would be as strong as the object you place it in. But when you place your faith and trust in Christ and his word, it's extremely strong. And this man is that. He, not, he knows not just what he believes and why he believes, but he knows in whom he believes. There's a difference there. It's not just about knowledge and about, yeah, I know why I believe and what I believe, but I know in whom I have believed. The Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. See, faith will never come about without a consistent prayer life. Faith and prayer are like a Reese's with chocolate and peanut butter. They taste fine by themselves, but when you put them together, something incredible happens. It's like gasoline in a car engine. They both serve a purpose, but when you put them together, they reach their full potential. You will never be a man of faith if you don't understand how to pray. Faith will always come because a man is praying. It doesn't mean that this man, this older man, doesn't have fear from time to time. It doesn't mean that nothing comes into his life that just dumps his hat in the creek, so to speak. It means, though, that it's quickly alleviated by the promises of God's word, and he trusts in what God has said, not what his outward circumstances are. Right? Faith. I never will forget listening to the story of this lady who had passed away and her children got her Bible. And they went through it. And throughout her Bible, she had, by certain scriptures, it was just various ones all throughout her Bible, there was T's marked. Just T, the letter T. And then through some, you would see the letter TP. And then some, you, you wouldn't see anything. And she was like, what is these T's and TP's and all of these things? And, 
and uh, there would be a date by the T, and there would be a date by the P. So she's like, what is this? So she called up her friend, and she said, do you know what these T's and P's are for? And she said, yeah, I absolutely know what they're for. See, when, when your granny trusted God and believed God, she took the, the scripture that she was trusting God for, and she put a T and put the date, I'm trying it. And then when God answered it, she put a P and she said, tried and proven. She put the date. See, your children need to know and other men need to know that you're trying the word of God and he is proving himself to be true. It's a man of faith. The second thing, or I'm sorry, the, the seventh thing, sixth thing, love. I'm going to move quickly. Love. What he says. Faith, love, this is a one who loves sacrificially. John 13, 35 says what? My dear children, love one another. A new command I give you is to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, this guy loves he loves his brothers and sisters genuinely and lost humanity fervently. He has a desire to see people come to know Christ. He has a desire to see his brothers and sisters in the church be strengthened and encouraged and to grow. It is a love. He is an advocate to those he loves. He cares about those he loves. He, he sticks up for those he loves. He goes to their defense in prayer. He goes to their defense with another brother or sister when they're having disagreement or whatever. He, he is an advocate for those he loves. He cares about what's going on in their life. That's what we should strive to be. Amen. Seventh thing, he's patient. Look at what he says at the very end. And endurance. He's patient. He endures through trials and sufferings. He doesn't lose heart or throw in the towel when life gets tough. But he's patient. Why? James 1 tells us that patience is developed by what? The testing of our faith. And patience must run its work or endurance must complete its task so that we would be mature, complete, lacking nothing. I am not patient. Can any, any other man or woman in here attest to that? It is, it is the hardest thing for me to learn. And right now, my, my son is being potty trained. And so every day I go home, I don't know if he's a child or if I'm cleaning up after a puppy who doesn't, who's not housebroken yet. And my patience can run out. And it's in these moments where you endure through these trials through the things that you're going through and you're level-headed and you, you show integrity and you love genuinely. Patience. I've seen men of God who are older who just exhibit the most patience that I've ever seen and I'm like, aren't you upset? Don't you get frustrated by these things? Relax, Zach. Just Relax. One man said this to me. Zach, is this a mountain worth dying over? Is this a mountain worth dying on? 
Or is this something that really, in the scheme of eternity, doesn't make a bit of difference? We can lose our patience over stuff that means nothing in the scheme of eternity. But there are things we should take a stand for when it comes to the scheme of eternity. He's patient. And then the last thing, I know the list ends. I know that this list in in verse 2 ends. But anytime you see the word faith, love, and endurance together, it is always the outward working of hope. He's hopeful. He's beginning to learn what hope truly is. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us a uh, new life and, and placed us into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This man understands what is coming and his eyes are not focused on his outward circumstances but he is hopeful to what is ahead to where he will be someday. And if everything around him is crashing down, he is hopeful in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has faith, he loves, and he is showing endurance. He is hopeful. As Morgan comes to play, I want to just ask the men in this room this morning, we're going to keep this list up there. And as she comes to play, I'm going to ask every man in this room, what about that list do you need to work on in your life? God's completely dealt dealt in my life with this. Where on this list have you just simply failed? Maybe you're over 50 and it says to the older men, "This this is what your life should model. And there's things you need to work on. Maybe you're under 50 and and you're not, you're, you're looking for these men, but you also want to become like this. You want to finish well. These men finish well. So with every man in the room, where is it that you're missing it? Would you stand to your feet this morning? And I'm just going to ask husbands and wives, any single men, I'm going to just ask to gather across this altar and just to pray to your heavenly father. Where is it, God? This is what I struggle with. This is where I've just not got things right. I need help in these areas. Or it's just going to play softly. And I'm just going to ask the men to come. Kneel at this altar. Begin confessing to God. We'll never lead our families until God deals with us.